Lord, we thank you for this day and for the joy of it. We do ask that at this time you still our minds, still our hearts, still Catherine's heart to a northern normal rhythm so that she can bring you glory, speak your word, and that we can hear it. And we will give you the glory for that. Open our ears to hear. And let nothing hinder. Don't let Satan hinder. Don't let um, fear hinder us. But may everything we do bring you glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Morning. Morning. Good to be alive? (laughs) Isn't it good to know that our hands, our hearts are in God's hand? Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm having an episode right now, so if you wouldn't mind praying. I did learn a couple new um, medical terms. Do you know when your heart is racing 175 beats a minute, and then all of a sudden it snaps back to normal? What that's called? Conversion. I got converted twice in one day. I'm going to run out of time because this is a long lesson, but I do have to tell you the worst part of the whole ordeal, and some of you have been through so much more than this, but the last time I spent the night in the hospital was when I had my third baby. So it's been a long time since I've had an experience in the hospital, but the worst part by far was the bedpan. (laughs) I begged them. I was in the emergency room for five hours. They were trying to get the heart rate down, you know. And I was hooked up to all this machinery. And, uh, and then they, they fill you with those IV bags, you know, like two gallons worth of water. And I'm laying there flat, and I'm thinking, I am going to explode. <laughs> and so I said, I really have to go to the bathroom. Well, I, this was Sunday. I was in my church clothes. I looked pretty good, you know. I had, <laughs> I even had, the whole time I'm laying there, I had high heels on, I had earrings on, and I said to the girl, she says, ma'am, you're going to have to use a bedpan. I said, no way. I walked in here on my high heels, you know, I can walk to that bathroom, I see it right there, I can walk there. No, ma'am, I'm sorry, you cannot. Um, Your heart is really racing, and if something happened to you, you would be, how about if I sign a waiver? I really said that. I said, I will sign anything that if I fall, I will not sue the hospital, blah, blah, blah. No, ma'am, I am sorry. And, of course, when, you know, when they put that dumb thing under you and you're laying flat, how do you go to the bathroom when you're laying? It's not normal. (laughs) And I had to go so bad, but then I couldn't. You know, the feeling. And it took, I was praying, Lord, please help me release it. And when I did, I really thought I was going to flood that whole room. And no way it's going to fit in that little pan. I guess they hold more than you think. But finally, oh, the relief. The relief was just fantastic. But guess what? Ten minutes later, I have to go again. <laughs> um, hmm. All right, anyway, we are in Genesis chapter 14. The title for this message is The Ten King War and Melchizedek. Do you remember last time we skipped chapter 14? And the reason for that is so that we could devote more time to it 
in this lesson. This really should be two lessons. I should do the Ten King War in one lesson and then talk about Melchizedek in a second lesson. But because we got to move along, you know, I might not make it to the end of the stitch. So I've got to really, <laughs> we really got to move along. So I'm putting them both in one. So hold on to your heads. Hope you got some coffee because this is, especially when we get into Melchizedek, it's a difficult lesson. But, um, but it's exciting. It's exciting. There's actually a whole lot of typology in this. Who would think with a war? Did you know that this is the very first war recorded in the scripture? First time the word war appears in the Bible. It's the very first recorded war in the Bible, but also in all ancient literature. This is it, the very first war that there is a record of anywhere in the world. Now, I'm sure there were people fighting, little tribes, you know, fighting other tribes, but this is the first recorded one. It's about an attack on five Canaanite kings. Canaan is the ancient name for Israel. So these kings were down, if you look at your map, down near the Dead Sea. Those Canaanite kings were attacked by a coalition of four kings that came from places that still, to this very day, oppose Israel. Again, nothing new under the sun. Amazing. The invading leader king was named Ketalamer. It's a mouthful. He was from Elam. You see his name in the first verse. Elam became Persia and is what is today part of modern day Iraq. So the leader of this attacking coalition was an Iraqi. And ancient Assyrian tablets that have been discovered by archaeologists found out that this Ketalamer was tagged the ravager of the West. He was a brutal man. He not only easily defeated the five kings of the Dead Sea area. Another title for this war is the Dead Sea War. He easily defeated them, but basically he also managed to subdue most of the land that today is modern-day Israel. But on his way back home <laughs> over to Iraq which wasn't called Iraq then, you know, it was Mesopotamia. But on the way back, he had the surprise of his life. A tenth king suddenly appeared from seemingly out of nowhere and literally changed the entire outcome of the war. Ketalamer and the three kings with him had won the war, but when this tenth king appeared, all of a sudden, he completely lost the war. <laughs> he also lost his life. The king, that king, that tenth king, was really not a king. He was really a Bedouin tent dweller. You could call him maybe a sheik. <laughs> and his rather puny army consisted primarily of his household servants. What was his name? Abram. Abram. When the Ten King War, a.k.a. the Dead Sea War, was then really over, completely over, with Abram's shocking 
intervention, yet another king. This is the one some of you are thinking about. Yet another king, an 11th very mysterious king, appeared on the scene. And his name, I really think, though it wasn't his name, I think it's his title, a title, was Melchizedek. A compound word that actually means king of righteousness. So I don't think that was his name. That was his title. Now, whether or not the resurrected Lord Jesus addressed this ten-king war, or, and, or, the eleventh king named Melchizedek, as he was teaching Old Testament Christology, from the Old Testament to his disciples, you know, on that road to Emmaus, and then later that same day to the rest of his disciples, whether he taught about that war, I doubt he had time to talk about the Ten King War. But perhaps he did mention Melchizedek, because Melchizedek definitely, definitely is a type of Christ, if not Christ himself. We'll talk about that. Also, that first war, interestingly, that Ten King War, serves as a picture, a prophetic picture, of the last war on earth. The last premillennial war. There's one really quick war after the millennium, but we don't have much of a description of it, and it's over quickly. Now, in comparing, which is always what we want to do with Scripture, Comparing the first recorded war of scripture with the last recorded war of scripture prior to the Lord's return, we do find that both are associated with how many kings? Remember the statue of the dream, Nebuchadnezzar's dream, how many toes? How many horns on that final beast? Ten, ten. So both are associated with ten kings. Both wars are associated with evil ravagers of forces that come against and do battle in the land of Israel. You have Ketelamer, and of course, then you have the Antichrist. Also, both wars culminate with a surprising overturn of events with Israel winning against amazingly disproportional odds. In Armageddon, the whole world comes against her. And yet she wins that battle. Only because of who, though? (laughs) Same thing with this war. Because the Most High God was on the side of Abraham, just like he'll be, of course, on the side of Israel. Also in both battles, Israel... Now remember, Israel is in... Abram, at this point, you know, Israel is in his seed in the first war. Both battles, Israel receives a wonderful blessing by the sudden appearance of the king of righteousness, who is also the king of Salem, king of peace. Salem comes from Shalom. Melchizedek was the king of Salem, which, of course, later became Jerusalem, which means city of peace. So he's king of righteousness and he's king of peace. And also the order is perfect. If you look at when it talks about him, I think it's in verse 18. Um, His name comes first 
because righteousness, king of righteousness, comes before peace. You cannot have peace without righteousness. So even the order is perfect there. So Israel is blessed by the sudden appearance of this king, who is also, just so happens to also be the, not a, but the high priest. It says that also in verse 18. The high priest of the most high God. So, you see, it doesn't take a great theologian to see the connection between Melchizedek and the timing of his appearance, and it's after Ketelamer, right? Ketelamer is a picture of the Antichrist. He gets killed right after he's killed. Who appears? Melchizedek. See the timing there? It doesn't take a, a theologian to see that. Um, with, with, of course, Christ's return at the end of the Battle of Armageddon. Now, Abram got involved in this war of five kings against four kings. What is that? Five plus four? Nine. Okay, he became the tenth king. He got involved in this war because his nephew Lot had been taken captive by the confederacy of forces that invaded Canaan. The, eastern, the four eastern kings of that coalition were from, and this is in um, uh, the first few verses of the chapter, not going to give you their names right now other than Ketelamer, but they were from Babylon, which was southern Mesopotamia. Uh, one of the kings was from northern Mesopotamia, the area of Assyria. Ketelamer, as I already told you, was from Elam, which is part of Iraq today. And then the fourth king was... Um, kind of a king over a bunch of little tribes that were in southeast Turkey. Now, all of those countries today are Arabic, Muslim, and they, they, are, they oppose Israel. Um, they invaded the five major city-states of the Siddim Valley. The Siddim means fields. Down there in the Dead Sea, the lowest place on planet Earth, you know, is the Dead Sea even below sea level. But back in this day, it was fertile. Siddim means fields, rich with fields. That's why Lot lusted after it and wanted to take his herds there. It was very fertile. Uh, the five major city-states of that area were Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and Zoar. Now, the reason they were attacked by the four kings from the east is because 12 years earlier they had been subdued by those kings from the east. I don't know, we don't know, I have any record of that, but apparently somehow they came over. It was a trade route and they wanted that trade route. Probably they wanted um, to, there were some really rich copper mines there. They wanted, they wanted that area um, to be overlords of it. So they came and they they caused the people to pay high taxes to them, heavy tribute. And, for, and, and that probably occurred just about the same time that Abram entered into the land of Canaan. Now, Abram is about 85 years old in this war. All right? So for 12 years, these five city-states and really the rest of Canaan were paying heavy taxes to these eastern kings. Well, in the 13th year, they decided to stop doing that. They'd had enough. And so they, they got together and they said, we're not going to pay taxes anymore. And then they also 
made a pact with one another and said, well, when we get attacked, because sure enough, they figured they would <laughs> for not paying their taxes, they said, when they come and attack us, we'll join together and we'll fight against them. And they figured they had a pretty good chance because they were five kings and the others were four kings. You know, it would be their home turf, etc. So this was why, um, why they were attacked because the four kings did get together and they came, they came down under the leadership of this man named Ketalamer. Now we have a description of that, their war path, given to us in verses 5 to 12. Ketalamer, the ravager of the West, did not wait to vent his fury just on those five city-states, those five kings who actually rebelled. He decided, rather, to ravage every single village and people group of any significance on his way down. You see your map? You know, they, they came from... Over here, it's off the map, but Babylon, Mesopotamia, Turkey, etc. They came on down, and as they came down, they fought and basically just um, destroyed all kinds of people. And they say that for hundreds of years afterward, the path of this brutal army was like an abandoned cemetery and gave abundant reason for why he was nicknamed the Ravager of the West. He was definitely a type of the coming Antichrist in that he was a ruthless invader. And uh, he was the head of the very first coalition of kings who made havoc on the land that God had promised to Abraham's seed. So he makes a wide sweep. What he does is he comes down... And he goes around the five, it's kind of like making a loop, a net, or a noose, you know, um, around the five city-states that had rebelled. And he's going to tighten that noose. But what he does is he defeats every kind of Canaanite people on the way. And here they are. We'll look at the first ones, are the Rephaims. You see them up here in Ashtaroth, Canaan. He comes across them first of all. The Rephaims were really big people, like giants. <laughs> um, they're, they're, they were called, Rephaim means mighty ones or giants. Do you remember in Deuteronomy, there is a giant named Og, O-G. He was about 12 feet tall. He was a Rephaim. Big guys. You know, that make, would, you think, would make them mighty soldiers too, right? Big guys. Well, then, and he destroys them. Then, Ketalamer and his coalition go down to near Ham. You see the city of Ham. And they destroy the Zuzim. <laughs> now, Zuzim means powerful ones. They are probably the same as the Zamzumin which are described also in the book of Deuteronomy as great and many and tall. Then he went further down, and you can see down there in Shavakirathiam, or whatever it is, he destroyed the Emim. That, that word means the terrible ones. Then going further, I didn't have room because the map ran out, but Edom is down further south, 
He destroyed the Horites and uh, then the Amalekites. They weren't called that yet, but they would be one day. He destroyed the people that lived in the area that would be uh, the future place of Amalekites. Those were descendants of Esau's grandson, Amalek. And then the Amorites, which was the dominant tribe in Canaan at that time. Now, none of that is really that important other than to understand that Ketelamer's battle strategy was excellent because he successfully smashed every significant source of assistance for those five kings down there in the Sidamat Valley before he then would swoop down to tighten the noose around the necks of those who had been responsible for the invasion. You see, he got rid of all the terrible ones, the mighty ones, the giants, uh, anyone who might come to their aid. You get it? So they're all destroyed. (laughs) However, as mighty and as wonderful as he probably thought he was, because all these guys have egos. You know, we've looked at already a number of types of the Antichrist, haven't we? We've looked at Cain. And uh, Lamech, the bad Lamech, and then there was um, um, Nimrod, and now Ketelamer. But they all had ego problems, so I'm sure that this guy was full of himself and thought how wonderful and mighty he was. Yet, who was actually using him? God was using this man's evil and the other kings that were with, with you know, he's using the evil of man, <clears throat> as he will do also with the Antichrist, For his own purposes, you know, like the four horsemen of the apocalypse, those ancient four kings were divinely used by God to scourge the promised land of the godless citizens who dwelt there. You see, the mighty ones, the giants, the terrible ones, the powerful ones, the Horites, Amalekites, they were all evil people, very evil people. Canaanites, idol worshipers, people who threw their babies to the gods to burn, you know, I mean, awful. And what God was doing was using these kings to scourge the land that he had promised to Abraham's seed. For all the advantages of the five Siddim Valley kings, the Dead Sea kings, you know, I I told you they were five against four. You'd think that would be an advantage. They were on their home turf which would mean that, um, that they were closer to their supplies and food and everything. <laughs> and when you're fighting for your homeland, you usually have an extra, extra zeal. Uh, also, they knew the territory. They knew where the Siddim Valley slime pits were located, and they had a plan. They were going to trick and root the kings and get them to fall into those slime pits. That was part of their plan. Um, And the other army was also war-weary by this time, wouldn't you think? They'd been fighting for a long time, whereas the five kings down there were fresh. So they had all kinds of advantages, and yet it was a very easy victory for Ketelamer. Especially interesting is that it was actually the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah who wound up falling into the slime pits. I I think that's divine justice, really. (coughs) Because those two cities were populated by, if you look at 
Genesis 13, 13, they were populated by exceedingly wicked sinners before the Lord. You know that when you think of Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, Ezekiel says that, that one of their sins, I know what sin you're thinking of, but one of their sins was that they were excessively lazy. You know, when you're full of lust and you hang out in the bars all night and you, you cloud your brain with alcohol and you're not really going to make a really good soldier, are you, the next day to go to battle. So they, they were easily defeated. And I don't know if the, the kings were cowards and they went to hide in the slime pits. It actually says they fell in them. But that seems kind of strange then when they knew where they were. But they wound up. And that slime was actually like asphalt. <laughs> Sticky. Like tar, you know, tar. They were almost like tar and feathered. So can't you just picture them? They didn't drown in this stuff, but they were just covered with it. I find that funny. <laughs> uh, they were people who lived in the miry slime of sin. So to exhibit their filthiness within, it's like God covered them with filthiness without. So the four kings won the Dead Sea War. And then they began their long trick trip back home <clears throat> and everything would have been hunky-dory for them I mean you know they're in they're in uh, celebration mode with banners flying and uh, they had all kinds of increased goods because everywhere they went they took the spoils of warfare you know the gold the silver all the riches of every town and Sodom they took everything out of Sodom and Sodom was a very wealthy city and they had all kinds of captives with them um, to be their slaves for the rest of their lives. So everything for them was great. They never, ever, in a million years, would have thought that one old 85-year-old man, a rancher, would have been a factor worthy of consideration in their battle plans. Abram, the Hebrew, never heard of him. Of course they never heard of him. He was living up in the mountainous country near Hebron. He wasn't involved in any of this. And guess what? He wouldn't have been a factor at all in their battle plans, would he have? If it had not been for Almighty God, a promise-keeping God. Because God had made some promises to Abraham, hadn't he? Abrahamic covenant. One of those promises was that from his seed, all the family groups of the earth would be blessed. In other words, from his seed would come the Savior for mankind. At this point, does Abraham have any seed? Does he have any sons? No, he doesn't have any sons yet. So at all costs, he has to be kept alive, doesn't he? So it really wouldn't matter how many kings... Abraham decided to fight against a hundred, a thousand, a million. It wouldn't matter. God made a promise and he would keep that promise. And so Abraham would be preserved no matter what. Also, God had made another promise. He had said in chapter 12, verse 3, that he would bless those who blessed him and curse those that cursed him. And so like Pharaoh of Egypt, <clears throat> who had put beautiful Sarah into his harem and suffered the consequences of that promise of God's. 
Now, even though it wasn't his fault, he suffered the consequences, didn't he? So just like Pharaoh, Ketelamer had unknowingly put himself on the wrong side of that same promise when he took Abraham's nephew, his brother's son. It says in verse 14 that when Abraham heard that his brother, he calls him his brother, you know, it's his brother's son, but his brother in the Lord, when he heard he was taken captive, he just said to himself, oh, well, he's just getting what he deserves. He's been a bad boy. <laughs> Did he say, God's chastening him and I should just stay out of it? Did he say, oh, I'll pay for some mercenary soldiers to go and rescue him? Did he say any one of them, many, I'm old. I don't even have an army. I'm not a fighter. I'm a farmer. <laughs> Think of all the excuses he could have come up with. Did he do that? No. Immediately he took action. Unlike Cain, he didn't say, am I my brother's keeper? Yay. He hadn't been selfish when he had offered <coughs> Lot first choice of land when their herdsmen were fighting. And he did not now selfishly put his past grievances above Lot's desperate need. <clears throat> Lot was in desperate need. He and his whole family were going to be slaves for the rest of their lives. Going to go back to where he started from, you know, back to southern Mesopotamia and be slaves this time. So with only 318 men who were his household servants and a few Amorite friends that, that Abram had made, and maybe some of their servants, he tra Abraham travels some 120 miles. Now, see, he's living here in Hebron. This is mountain. You can't see the landscape, the topography. But he's in the mountainous area near Hebron, Hebron, and he travels all the way up to Dan, which is 120 miles, you know, on foot or horses or whatever, but not on Amtrak. <laughs> And uh, he travels all that distance <clears throat> to make a surprise attack on the conquering kings of the east. The puny size of his, if you can even call it an army, the puny size of his army compared to their army was comparable to Gideon's 300 men fighting against 135,000 Midianites. Or comparable to a young boy with the slingshot in his hand going up against the giant Goliath. I almost said Og. <laughs> Goliath. Um, <clears throat> to the world, that mission, Abram's mission looks suicidal. Don't you think everybody say, oh, it's going to be sad. They're all going to be wiped out. That's just totally suicidal. But the world didn't know what you and I know and that is that the Lord was on Abram's side, just as he was on Gideon's side, and as he was with David when he went out to fight Goliath. Now, Abram also proved to be a pretty good military strategist, because when he found the, arm, the enemy, he, he divided his army into different divisions, and he put them in various different locations. Gideon did the same thing. I mean, he finally found them camped, you know, so he told 
maybe uh, 50 men, you go over on, on that ridge, you 50 go over there, you, you guys go there, you go there, you know, and spread them all out <clears throat> so that when they attacked, it would look like they were coming from everywhere. It would look like there's a whole lot more of them than there really were. Also, he attacked at night so that the enemy, well, for one thing, was probably drunk and partying and enjoying some of the female captives that they had taken with them, um, but also so that they couldn't clearly see who it was attacking them. Oh, they all have house coats on. <laughs> They're household servants. <laughs> Those are just old men and young boys. And there really aren't that many of them, you know, so he attacked at night. It was just really brilliant. And as I said, Ketelamers and the other kings, all, all their troops were relaxed. Why wouldn't they be? The battle was over. They had won. They're on their way home. They're in celebration mode. Thoughts of an attack from anyone was very, very, very unlikely. After all, who was left to attack them? They had gotten all the giants and the terrible ones, right? They'd, they'd smashed everybody. Who was left? So <laughs> when Abram's army suddenly came upon them in the middle of the night from all directions, they were confused. They were totally unprepared. They didn't have a battle strategy. And so you know what they did? They fled. They just started running. And then Genesis 14, 16 tells us that... <clears throat> Um, he, he, he did something else that was very wise. He pursued them. He didn't just say, oh, we got rid of them. You know, let's get the captives and go back home. He pursued them for another 60 miles. Another 60 miles north of Dan is Damascus. So 180 miles he went one way. He pursued them all the way to Damascus where he then killed all the, king, the four kings and um, <clears throat> and utterly defeated and scattered the rest of the, the army and took all the prisoners of war from every, every place they had conquered. The, you know, the Rephaims, the Horites, the Canaanites, all of the people, the Sodomites, his, his nephew. He took all the captives and all the spoil of warfare. That was a lot of goods that they had taken with him. So he got it all. It says in verse 16, he brought back all the goods and also brought again his brother Lot and his goods and the women also and the people, probably thousands of people that he brought back with him. He had set the captives free. Now, once Lot was set free, the sad thing, I think, is I don't read a thank you. Do you read a thank you from Lot? I don't, I don't read anything about Lot except that he went right back to living in Sodom. Mm. You think, I mean, God was chastening him. God was giving him a warning. But he didn't, he didn't catch on to that. He could have taken his family to Hebron and lived out the rest of his life with Abram. That would have been the thing to do. Abram would have let, let him. He was forgiving. But he didn't. He was still too attached to Sodom, wasn't he? And so he returned there. I don't know, maybe he tried to justify it by saying, well, they need a light in that city. You know, I'll be the light for the Lord to shine. But he proved to be too spiritually weak 
to be to stand alone for God in that very evil and immoral place. Two of his daughters even married Sodomite men, and they scoffed him when he actually tried to warn them that the city was going to be destroyed. So we know that um, next time he got chastened, what happened? He lost everything, didn't he? Didn't get it back this time. Lost everything except his soul. (coughs) Well, Abram then encountered a totally new battle. You know, after you win a victory, watch out. After you win a victory, that's when Satan really likes to attack. So when he's returning from victory, (coughs) we find he has encounters with two kings. The king of Salem, Melchizedek, and the king of Sodom. His name was Bera. Gift. His name means gift. You know what Sodom means? Burning. Isn't that appropriate? Beware of the gifts of Sodom because they wind up burning you and ultimately burning away forever. One king represented God. The other king represented Satan. One would remind Abram of the Most High God to whom the glory and honor for the victory belong. The other king would actually tempt Abram to compromise with the world and take all the glory and all the riches for himself. Fortunately, the Lord God orchestrated the circumstances so that prior to Abraham's encounter with the king of Sodom, first of all, he met the king of Salem, who prepared him for the temptation. Now, you know, Abram had become a hero to the Canaanites. When you see an 85-year-old man in a Superman costume, that was Abram. He was an instant sensation. He was the man. (laughs) He had shown unnatural courage against impossible odds and saved thousands, not only from the embarrassment and the tyranny of defeat, but from lifelong enslavement in the East somewhere. So, as I said, he was an overnight sensation, and his trip back to Hebron must have been lined with people, you know, a victory parade. Maybe they put him on a white horse. Maybe they were waving palm branches. Hosanna. I don't know, but it was was a celebration for him all the way there. In Genesis 14, 17, we read that the king of Sodom likewise set forth to meet Abram. Now, do you remember the last time we saw this man, Bera? The last time we saw him, he was covered with <laughs> sticky tar, wasn't he? Oh. Uh, now, he um, obviously, he didn't die, so he had managed to escape. That's what makes me think he hid in the slime pit. Uh, but he managed to escape, and he had gone back to his city. But his city, Sodom, had been looted of all the people, and all the wealth, all the possessions of the city. So he was now a poor king, a very poor king with no riches. But actually, he was no king at all because he didn't have any citizens. You can't be a king unless you have kingdom subjects. I'm roasting. Mm. Um, So... So he's no king at all. Now you have to listen to this because this took me all of 10 minutes to do this. You ready? He was a sidim slime soiled subjectless sodomite so- sovereign. 
You want to hear that again? He was a Siddim, slime-soiled, subjectless, sodomite sovereign. <laughs> I have so much fun when I'm in the hospital. <laughs> so, when he heard of Abram's victory, he was, he was, he, he was excited, but he had a plan. He had a plan. He, he was going to go and bargain with Abraham. He was going to bargain souls for spoil, people for possessions. You see, he was going to say, you give me all my citizens that you've set free, all the sodomite citizens, because he knew that with people, he'd be a king again, and he could build back up his army. And once he had an army, probably in the back of his mind, he thought, then I can go and attack Abram and get back all the possessions as well. So he had this plan. Ironically, there was an, uh, a universal code that is called the Law of War and Conquest. And that code was in Abram's favor. You know what that code was? It was the victor's right to keep all of the spoils of warfare, the people and the possessions. So by right, he owned everything anyway. It was all Abraham's. All those people and all that wealth was his. So this guy was going to bargain for something that wasn't even, he had nothing really to bargain with. The meeting with the king of Sodom was really going to be a test for Abram. A test after the battle. Here's the questions. Would he, would he return the people and then keep the plunder for himself? Would he do that? Would he keep everything? Would he share the victory spoils with others? Or would he give them back to the people they belong to in the first place? And how would he handle all that worldly praise that was coming his way? Would he revel in it? Or would he make sure that he gave all the glory and honor to God? Now we can speculate what Abram might have done if he had met the king of Sodom before he met the king of Salem. But we don't know for certain, do we? I'd like to think he would do the right thing, regardless. We do know that he was very wise in that he had made a vow to God before he even went to battle. He had vowed to the Lord that he would take no personal gain, not even a, let me see if I can find the verse. Look at verse 23. He says, I will not take from a thread, that's like a you know thread from your clothing, even to a shoe latch. I'm not going to take a clothing thread or a shoelace. And I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou should say I have made Abram rich. Well, he had made this vow actually before he went to war, that he would do that. It's always wise to know, because you know you're going to face temptation of all kinds. It's always wise to know ahead of time what you're going to do before you face it. So he had thought this through. So besides the vow, he did then meet the king of Salem first, Melchizedek. So these things prepared him spiritually for his test. He did, he did meet the king of um, Sodom, interestingly, we're told, in the valley of Shavah which is called the King's Dale. That's in verse 17. You see that? That means nothing to you, right? 
except it's really interesting because that Kingsdale happens to be the Kidron Valley. Hmm. Someone else went down the Kidron Valley before he faced the greatest temptation of his life, which was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And what did he conclude? In his humanity, not my will, not my human will, but thine. You know, I will drink that cup to the bitter dregs. And I talk about that in the lesson. Don't have time to develop it now. Well, in the days of Abraham, you know, an army, they didn't have coolers <clears throat> to carry their food and drink. So they depended on the local citizens for their food and drink. So we find that when Melchizedek showed up from out of nowhere, you know, who is this guy? Where did he come from? He shows up and he brings with him what? Bread and wine. That physical refreshment, of course, would be greatly welcomed by Abram's men, who would be weary and hungry from chasing Ketalamer all that way to Damascus. But there's a whole lot more here than just the physical nourishment that Melchizedek, Melchizedek brought. There's spiritual refreshment here, too. This is the first time in the scripture that we read of the combination of bread and wine. There is a principle, a Bible principle, that theologians call the principle of first mention. In simple terms, it simply it, it means that the first time an important word or an idea is mentioned in the scripture there is some special measure of spiritual insight in the context of that word. First time it appears, you look at it, you examine it, and you see what you can pull out of it because you know there's some significance there. So there is some spiritual insight in Melchizedek's gift of bread and wine. He brought a gift. It was free. Bera. His name means gift, but his gift wasn't even really a gift because he was asking for something that was already Abraham's, and it was a gift of temptation, really. Again, there's a whole lot. You can just keep going and going on this because there's so much significance. But uh, there is another significant word in this um, context here with Melchizedek that appears for the very first time, and it is the word priest. Melchizedek is the very first priest mentioned in the word of God. It says he is the priest of the most high God. It's interesting, if he's a priest, why he didn't bring a lamb for a, an, or build an altar. No lamb, no altar. He brings instead the free gift of bread and wine and does it with a blessing. <laughs> he blesses Abraham. And he has a very unique relationship with God because he's the first person ever to refer to God as El Elyon. Remember in the book of Daniel, we talked about that. What does El Elyon mean? The most high God. And he says he's the possessor of heaven and earth. Why is he the possessor of heaven and earth? Because he's the creator of heaven and earth. He's also, as we mentioned, the king of Salem, which later became Jerusalem. Salem comes from the word shalom, which means peace. This is the very first use in the Bible of the word shalom, peace. 
The name Melchizedek, which is probably a title, means king of righteousness. So there's so much just in verses 18 and 19. It is amazing. So what we have is that this is the very first mention of bread and wine. We have it brought from the king of righteousness, who is also the king of peace. And the priest, not a priest, but the priest of the Most High God, who is possessor of heaven and earth. And he is offering those elements of bread and wine to Abram, the man through whom all uh, the families of the earth would be blessed. There's no doubt whatsoever that this significant event was a picture of, of the refreshment and the redemptive work of Christ, the king of righteousness, the king of peace, the high priest of El Elyon, for all mankind, not just Israel. You see, this event is pre-Israel, isn't it? Israel is still in Abram's loins. This is pre-Israel. Actually, Melchizedek and Abram are both Gentiles, so to speak, because there were no Jews yet. Melchizedek was a priest when there were yet no Levitical or Aaronic priests. There was no Levitical or Aaronic priesthood. Those two would come from his loins. And as I said, he did not bring elements that are associated with Old Testament Israel such as a lamb for the burnt offering or unleavened bread or bitter herbs as were used in the Passover. He brought bread and wine, which are the two elements of the new covenant, which are used to remind believers, Jew and Gentile, members of the church of Christ's sacrifice on the cross when his body was broken for us, represented by the bread and his sinless blood was shed, represented by the wine for us, for the redeeming of our, our sins. Isn't that, isn't that beautiful? Well, do you know that it wasn't for a thousand years that the name Melchizedek again appeared in scripture? Had to wait a thousand years to hear his name again. Uh, you know, he appeared, he disappeared. <laughs> Reminds me of on the road to Emmaus when he broke the bread and then he disappeared when they knew who he was. Uh, where did he go? We don't know. Why was there a righteous king in the land of the Canaanites? That doesn't make sense either, does it? And if he was already there, why didn't God? Why did God bother to move an idol worshiping guy all the way from Ur of the Chaldees? Why didn't he just use Melchizedek to bring this savior into the world? A lot of questions. But for a thousand years, nobody heard of the name Melchizedek again, other than here in Genesis 14. And then David, King David, was inspired to write of him in Psalm 110, verse 4, which both Jews and Christians all recognize is a messianic psalm. Jesus quoted from that psalm a number of times because it starts out by saying, and Yahweh said to Adonai, sit thou on my right hand. You know, he's proving that the Messiah, Adonai, was also God. He used that verse. Well, in verse 4, 
David refers to Adonai, the Lord, the Messiah, as a priest forever after the order of, and here comes that name again, Melchizedek. In other words, what David was inspired to, to, to reveal was that the coming Messiah was to be a priest. We know he's going to be a king, a king like David, sit on his throne forever. We know he's going to be a prophet like unto Moses who would deliver his people. And now we find out that he was also going to be a priest. He was going to be a priest, but he would not be a priest after the order of the Levitical or the Aaronic priesthoods. Instead, he would be of the Melchizedekian priesthood which predated the others. In fact, as I said, it predated Israel and the Melchizedekian priesthood predated the law. The priesthood of Melchizedek is therefore superior, having come first. This is what Hebrews tells us. It was superior because it came first before the Levitical and the Aaronic. It's also superior in that it is an eternal priesthood without beginning and without end. And it extends beyond Israel. It existed before Israel and it goes on after Israel. Aaron's priesthood never never transcended, transcended the confines of Israel. The high priesthood, you know, Aaron, the brother of Moses, that's where the high priest had to come from, um, prove his genealogy back to Aaron. That was all, only for Israel. The other countries didn't have an Aaronic priesthood. They didn't have a Levitical priesthood. Uh, the Levitical priests served Yahweh, the God of Israel. But Melchizedek's priesthood preceded Israel, which is why his, he's referred to as the priest of the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth. In other words, his priesthood prefigured Christ. It was a picture of, a foreshadowing of, Christ's superior, eternal priesthood, which also extends beyond Israel, doesn't it? He's our great high priest. It extends to all mankind because he's a priest after the God of heaven and earth. Well, then, after David's brief little words there in that one verse, Psalm 110, verse 4, Melchizedek wasn't mentioned again in the scripture for another thousand years. It's funny, he's mentioned three times, and each one of them are a thousand years apart. Um, And the next time we hear about him is in the book of Hebrews which actually reveals quite a bit about him compared to the other two places. So it was some 2,000 years after Melchizedek's mysterious appearance, you know, in Genesis 14 to Abram, that mankind, this progressive revelation, you have to wait a long time to learn some things in the Bible, but finally mankind was told some startling things about Melchizedek, startling with regard to the promised Savior, the Lord Jesus. We're told that Christ was the high, Jesus Christ. Now, I finally identified who the Messiah was. You know, there was going to be, the Lord was going to be a priest, 
after the order of Melchizedek. Now we are identified who he is, Christ. Jesus Christ is the high priest of God after the order of Melchizedek. You see, the Jewish people to whom the book of Hebrews was primarily and originally written, that's why it's called Hebrews, it was written to them primarily, but they they were having a difficult time accepting Jesus as Messiah when he didn't even qualify to be a priest, just a regular priest, you know, like a Levitical, even the lowest priest on the Levitical chain. He couldn't go into the court of the priests. He had to stay, you know, in the court of the men. He couldn't go any further, which is a joke. <laughs> I guess he's God, but, you know, and so they're, they're, they're having a hard time with, well, how could he be our Messiah when he doesn't really, he really even couldn't be a priest. And so um, they thought that this disqualified him. But the author of the book of Hebrews reminds them of the priesthood that not only preceded the Levitical, but also the Aaronic priesthoods and was superior to both. And it was the priesthood that was represented by Melchizedek. The priesthood of Melchizedek was superior to both of those others, um, as I just told you. But it was actually demonstrated when Melchizedek blessed Abram. In Abram's seed was Israel. In his seed was the Levitical and the Aaronic priesthood, right? Okay, now tell me, who blesses another, the greater or the lesser? The greater blesses the lesser. And Hebrews 7 tells us that. That's why Melchizedek's priesthood was superior, because he blessed Abraham. The Levite priests and the Aaronic priests were all blessed by Melchizedek. Also, who tithed who? Abram tithed Melchizedek. So in Abram, that means Israel and the other priesthoods were lesser because the lesser tithes to the greater. This is all explained in the book of Hebrews chapter 7. As I said, at that time, the Levitical priesthood was in Abram. Um, So the Lord, the Lord Adonai, the coming Messiah, was to be a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And you know what? The Jews should have known that. They should have known that because David had told them that in Psalm 110, verse 4. So the Melchizedekian... Kizedekian priesthood is not only superior to the other priests because it preceded them, but it's also eternal. Hebrews 6.20 says that Christ is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek for how long? Forever. Forever. Now how, we might wonder, how could the priesthood of Melchizedek be forever? be eternal? Well, again, Hebrews 7 answers that question by telling us that Melchizedek had no ancestors and no descendants. It says in Hebrews 7 verse 3 that he was without father, without mother, and without descent. That means with no children. There is nothing, you can search your whole Bible, but there is nothing in scripture about his origin. 
nothing about his genealogy, his parents or his forefathers, which is very, very, very unusual because genealogies were meticulously kept, as we've seen, for everyone, you know, the, the Jewish people particularly. To be in the Aaronic priesthood, one had to have their genealogical record to show that they did descend from Aaron. Had to do that. So same with the Levites. They had to prove that they were from the tribe of Levi. But Melchizedek preceded Aaron. By having no record of genealogy or descendants, he appears. Melchizedek appears to have no beginning or no ending, which is again what Hebrews 7, 3 says. It says that he has neither beginning of days nor end of life. That means no birth and no death. This guy gets stranger by the minute, doesn't he? <laughs> Definitely. So his priesthood is superior to the others because it had no established beginning and no end. Did the Levitical priesthood have a beginning? Yes. The Aaronic priesthood have a beginning? Yes. Did they both have an ending? Yes. You know, they both ended the same day. The day of Christ's crucifixion when he said, it is finished, bowed his head, the, vent, the, the veil rent in half. That was the end of the priesthood. They then became obsolete and a new priesthood took over. We are a royal priesthood. We all have access to the Holy of Holies, don't we? Because of what Christ does. There's no need for a priesthood. If you go to a church that has priests, you ought to go tell them their job is over with. They can go home. They can retire. <laughs> oh, let's see. So where am I? <clears throat> the priesthood of Christ, after the order of Melchizedek, has neither beginning or end because Christ himself is eternal. His priesthood continues forever and ever and ever. Well, in verse 19, we see Melchizedek blessed Abram. And then in verse 20, he blessed God. Now, the reformer Martin Luther was very impressed with all of this. He thought of Melchizedek's words, and he doesn't say much, but he thought of his words in these two verses, um, 19 and 20, as a sermon. You know, we got the abbreviated form, but Luther said he probably talked longer because he's got a captive audience. I mean, literally, he's not just speaking with Abram. There are literally thousands of people around. Not only the 318 household servants, but you got his Amorite friends who went to war with him. You've got thousands of captives that he has set free. And then you've got all the Canaanite people who came out to hail him, you know, celebrate his victory home. He's almost home because he's near Jerusalem. So there's a lot of people. And Luther says that, <clears throat> that uh, Melchizedek probably told them about El Elyon, the most high God, possessor of heaven and earth, and how it was him. He is the one who delivered their enemies into Abram's hands. Their Canaanite gods had done them absolutely no good at all, had they? So he, he speculates that he preached. He took this opportunity to preach. And therefore, that would constitute him as also being a prophet. Okay? He's a king. He's a double king. King of righteousness and king of peace. And he's a priest. And he's a prophet. And there's only one other person that was all three. And who was that? Christ. So who, here's the big question, who was this mysterious Melchizedek? 
How could a man with such a godly title have come to be the king of Salem? Um, which wasn't even really a city much. It was the Jebusites, I think, lived there or something. But why would ungodly, idol-worshiping people make a godly man who worshipped a different god, why would they make him their king? And why would he want to be their king? It's just strange. Um, How was he recognized by Abram as God's priest? You know, how how did Abram know to that he was his superior and um and and give him a tithe for the lord why does this individual appear on the scene with no explanation whatsoever and then disappear just as mysteriously why a thousand years later does he suddenly get mentioned again in one little verse by david in a psalm that has to do with the Messiah, Adonai. And why, after another thousand years, is he mentioned a third time in the book of Hebrews in reference to the superior priesthood of Jesus Christ? Who exactly was Melchizedek? Do you want to (laughs) know? That question has been debated for centuries, millennium. Some claim that he was Noah's son, Shem. Through, you know, Shem was the one that the Messiah would come through, Shem. Uh, A lot of people believe he was Shem. Now, Shem actually outlived Abram. Interesting, isn't it? So, he was alive at this time. It could have been, except for one thing. He had a daddy, and he had a mommy, and we know they were Mr. and Mrs. Noah. There you go. (coughs) Others thought that he was an angel, but it specifically said that he was a man. Others say that he was uh, an alien from another planet. Okay, I'm not really going to go there. There are some really strange things. Uh, One's one, like the Mormons, you know, they would believe he was a second, another Adam, who, you know, they believe there's different atoms that populate different planets. (coughs) Oh, oh yeah. Um, The most, and I dismiss those. I'm not even going to give you reasons why I refute them. But the most popular opinion among the vast majority of conservative Bible teachers is that Melchizedek was a very godly man, divinely used, to serve as a prophetic type of the Lord Jesus. Like Melchizedek, Christ, of course, is also the king of righteousness and the king of peace. I got to think, I don't think I have this in my notes, but um, doesn't the Bible say in Romans 3, there is none righteous, no, not one? Wouldn't it be almost blasphemous to be the king of righteousness if you're just a man? Or the king of peace even, because there is no peace apart from the prince of peace. But uh, they say that like Christ, he was a, or Christ is a king of righteousness, king of peace. 
And Christ is both king and priest and prophet. And certainly in the offering of the bread and wine, we can see a picture of the Lord's future death on the cross. Also, in that, Hebrews tells us that Melchizedek uh, didn't have a father, you know, didn't have a mommy. I wonder if he didn't have a belly button. <laughs> he didn't have any descent, you know, any... He had neither beginning of days or end of days, but was made like unto the Son of God. And it says, this is Hebrews 7, 3, that he abideth a priest continually. That's Melchizedek. So in all of that, we know for sure this guy was definitely, definitely a type of Christ. You know, we're studying typology. He was a type of Christ. And the general interpretation of that verse Hebrews 7, 3, is that what the author meant is that there is no record, no record of his parents or any descendants. There is no record of his birth or his death. So if that's the case, then why didn't the scripture just say that? You know, that would have made it much clearer for all of us. It could have just said that he was without a record of his father and mother, etc., and then there's this question. Why does it say that he abideth a priest continually? Continually. Well, there's no definite answer for these questions unless he wasn't just merely a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, but in fact was the Lord Jesus Christ in a pre-incarnate appearance. After all, Christ is both the king of righteousness and the king of priests. And being eternal God, he was without father and mother and descendants and no birth and no death. Well, he has a man birth, but you know he's eternal God. So he, and he alone abides a priest continually. He's uniquely prophet, priest, and king. Whoever he was or whoever he is, Melchizedek, according to Hebrews 7.3, is still the priest of the Most High God. What did it say about him? He is a priest, the priest of the Most High God, continually. Now, that means that as he was a priest in the days of Abraham, he is yet the priest of the Most High God today, and he will be the priest of the Most High God tomorrow. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Okay. Well, if that's true, how can there be two eternal high priests of God? I don't have an answer for that unless they're one and the same. Because there's only one high priest. There was always only to be one high priest for Israel. You know, it was a no-no when Caiaphas and Annas were co-reigning high priests. They had no business doing that, and they weren't even in the right lineage anyway. Well, the main argument, I'm taking you back and forth, you see. <laughs> the main argument against Melchizedek being the pre-incarnate Christ is that Hebrews 7.3 says he was made like unto the Son of God. 
Why would it say like unto if he was the son of God? Well, then there's a counter argument to that. (laughs) For example, in the book of Daniel, when there was one like unto the son of God in the fiery furnace with Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Um, Perhaps such Christophanies, you know, pre-incarnate appearances of Christ in the Old Testament, use the term like unto of the Lord because his pre-incarnate appearances were often as he would appear when he was made in the likeness of man, perhaps. (laughs) Now, another objection to Melchizedek being pre-incarnate Christ is that Hebrews 7, 4 says he was a man, a man. But that doesn't hold a lot of weight either because there were many times when Christ appeared in the Old Testament and was called a man. One of them is in Genesis 18 when he appears with two angels and he sits down and eats with Abram. He says he describes him as a man. There's also Joshua 5.13, he's described as a man. Daniel 10.5. Now, since the Lord did appear to Abraham two times before this occurrence in chapter 14, Abraham has already seen the Lord of glory twice. Perhaps this would explain his recognition of Melchizedek as his superior. And it would help explain why he received his blessing and gave him a tithe. It would be perfectly fitting for the pre-incarnate Christ to bring bread and wine and bless them because those are symbolic elements of the body and the blood that he would offer on the cross. The pre-incarnate appearance of Christ as Melchizedek, king of righteousness, would explain his title, King of Salem, because um, he wouldn't really have been there reigning as king. He is the King of Salem. He is the King of Peace, and one day he will rule from Jerusalem as king over the whole world. So he wouldn't be a literal king ruling over a pagan people. If Melchizedek was Christ, it would explain how a righteous king and priest of the Most High God seemingly ruled in a pagan, over a pagan people. On the other hand, I'm almost done. Are you dizzy yet? On the other hand, Hebrews 7 says that another priest, and there it's speaking of Christ, another priest would arise after the order of Melchizedek and in the solemnitude of Melchizedek. So, this is a big question. How could Christ be after the order of himself? That seems to be a problem, doesn't it? But it may have an answer. It may have an answer. He does he cannot swear by anyone higher than him. So when he swears an oath, who does he swear it to? himself so perhaps 
He is after the order of his own pre-incarnate priesthood. <laughs> At any rate, we certainly see why this man Melchizedek remains one of the most mysterious figures in all of history. Right? Do you agree? A lot of questions? I really wanted to come up with an answer, but it's just about impossible. I guess we will find out one day in heaven, won't we? Now, my leaning, and this is my opinion, but my leaning is that he was the pre-incarnate Christ. That's my leaning. Well, we are out of time, and I can't see the clock, but I'm sure I'm way over. So just read the rest of the notes about when he does then meet with the king of Sodom. He gets an A plus because he passes the temptation of the king of Sodom. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the depth of your word. Thank you that even when I began this study, I had no idea how many places and events speak of you. There's even more than I thought. It's so rich. It's so deep. It's just like you, eternal. I'm sure in eternity we'll go on learning new, deeper things. Thank you, Jesus. Who, whoever Melchizedek was, thank you that he was such a great picture of you if he wasn't you. Thank you for... Um, for being a God who is just so infinite, so wise, so loving, so pure, so understanding, so patient. Oh, we just, we should really, really, really just be living sacrifices for you. That's just our reasonable service. Help us truly to live our lives, redeem our time wisely. Every minute that you give us, every heartbeat that you give us, may it be dedicated to serving you because you alone deserve all the glory, the honor, the praise, the wisdom, every, everything, everything, you deserve it all. And we uh, just ask now that you'll put a hedge of protection around every woman and her family, keep us all from the evil one, prepare us to meet those temptations, we might even have some today, give us wisdom to face them and get A pluses. We love you, Jesus, and we ask all these things in your blessed name. Amen.